This is 99% Invisible. I'm Roman Mars. So I'm down at the bottom of the hill away from the highway, and I'm about to cross a really old railroad bridge. It's not an active railroad anymore. That's Jack Rodolico wandering around the New Hampshire woods. It's a pretty view. He's about 10 miles north of the state capital off of Interstate 93, in a pretty out-of-the-way place. There are no signs or markers on the road indicating something special is there. But he's found something. So uh, you get out to this little island, and the railroad tracks go straight across, but what you really notice is this epic-looking granite monument in the middle of the island. It looks a lot like a monument you'd see in a city park, except it's on a forested island in the middle of a river. It is enormous. It's 30 feet tall. Wow. It's all granite, and on top of a tall pedestal, there's a woman. She's wearing this gown that's falling off her shoulders. In her right hand, she has a tomahawk, and in her left hand, she has a fistful of scalps. And on the back of this thing, I'm going to run around to the back here, is the inscription. Now let's pause for just a second here. If you are a regular listener to the show, you know how I feel about plaques and always reading them. The reason being that plaques tell stories. Sometimes they tell really amazing stories, if you can decipher them. March 15th to 30th, 1697. The war whoop, tomahawk, faggot, and infanticides were at Haverhill. The ashes of wigwam campfires at night and of ten of the tribe are here. I got nothing from that. Yeah, not a lot of detail there. Honestly, the whole island was strange to me. Kind of creepy, actually. Not very well kept up, this enormous, imposing statue with the eerie plaque. The scalps? What's crazy is this statue was erected in 1874, making it the oldest monument dedicated to a woman in the U.S. So you'd think someone would come out here and at least mow the grass, you know? Well, what I learned is that plaque does tell a story, though not an obvious one. And I learned there's a good reason why the grounds are neglected. In fact, what to do with this historic site has become a bit of a problem. And it all has to do with the woman in the monument and what she did. The story starts about 50 miles south of the monument in a town called Haverhill, Massachusetts. I went down there and met up with a local historian named Tom Spitaleri in the parking lot of a Dunkin' Donuts. How you doing? Good. Jack. Tom, nice to meet you. Nice to meet you too. Tom is a die-hard New Englander. I'll tell you he's wearing a Boston Red Sox jacket on top of a Boston Celtics jersey on top of a New England Patriots t-shirt. The car's going to get a little noisy. It needs a lot of work. Sure. And everywhere we drive in Haverhill, Tom sees signs of New England's past, particularly from colonial times. Enter the time of Hannah Dustin. During that time, we're embroiled in what some historians are now calling World War I. Most people would know it as the French-Indian War, or King Philip's, King George's, and the Seven Years' War. In the 1600s, New England was a war zone between the French, the British, and the Native Americans. By the end of that century, disease and war would wipe out most Native Americans in the Northeast. And Haverhill was... The Wild West. I mean, it sounds funny, but putting it in today's contents, that's what it was. We were the outpost. There was nothing north of us. That was it. There was nothing but wilderness around, making it an easy target for attacks by Native Americans. 
bands of Native Americans had shifting alliances with the British and the French. The French paid Abenakis to abduct Brits and bring them to Quebec. Then the French would sell these captives back to the British. It was a slave trade. So, I mean, this area was constantly being raided. Constantly. In 1697, a woman named Hannah Dustin was recovering from delivering her eighth child when Abenakis raided Haverhill. They killed and captured dozens of colonists and burned buildings. That's what the word faggots on the monument refers to. A faggot was a bundle of sticks used to fuel a fire. During the raid, Hannah Dustin's husband was outside with seven of their kids defending the homestead and his children. But Abenakis entered the house and abducted Hannah, her newborn baby girl, and her nurse, Mary Neff. The captives were marched north through the wilderness, and shortly after leaving Haverhill, when Hannah's baby wouldn't stop crying, one of the Abenakis smashed it against a tree. That's where you get the word infanticide from the monument's plaque. They kept walking north. Most likely they were heading to the outpost of St. Francis. That's up in Quebec. At some point, the war party handed Hannah Dustin and Mary Neff to another group of Abenakis, a group made up of a couple families. She was sold to those Native Americans as a slave. So the group of Abenakis that ended up with Hannah was made up of two fathers, two mothers, a grandmother, and a bunch of children. And they already had a white boy with them, a kid named Samuel Leonardson, who had been abducted from Worcester the previous year. So that makes three white captives and 12 Abenakis. The whole crew crossed the Merrimack River to the island, the one that now has the monument on it, and they set up camp for the night. In the middle of the night, Hannah Dustin made a decision. She rallied Mary and Samuel and led them around the sleeping Abenakis. One at a time, they brought a hatchet down on the Abenakis' heads. They killed 10 in total, two men, two women, six children. And then before making their getaway, they scalped each victim. Two Abenakis made it out alive, the old woman who was injured, and a little boy. Hannah, Mary, and Samuel left the island in a canoe. It was a dangerous time of year to be on the river. It would have been choked with ice and full of rapids. They traveled at night to avoid being seen. And 15 days after vanishing, Hannah Dustin and her companions landed in Haverhill, to the total shock of her husband, her seven children, and everyone who ever lost a family member to a raid. Hannah Dustin is the woman memorialized in the monument. The scalps she is holding in the statue belong to the ten people, including six children, that she and her companions killed on the island. And that statue isn't the only Hannah Dustin landmark in New England, not by a long shot. There are others, particularly in Haverhill, where she lived. Tom Spitaleri took me on a tour. Let me just pull off here real quick. This is the Hannah Dustin rest area. Named after. Is this the street here? I always forget. Yeah, this is it here. Here's Hannah Dustin Street. The Hannah Dustin Nursing Home. Obviously named after. Now we're at the Hannah Dustin Rock. Monument Street got its name from the monument that's there for Hannah Dustin. Boscoan Avenue. Boscoan is the town in New Hampshire where the island is. Tom even took me to an old garrison house, a fort essentially, where Hannah Dustin lived after her captivity. We do private tours in here. In a glass case is a piece of Hannah Dustin memorabilia I've seen on eBay. In the 1970s, the state of New Hampshire commissioned Jim Beam to make a Hannah Dustin whiskey decanter. It's an exact replica of the statue in New Hampshire, down to the little bloody scalps in her hand. 
It's made of porcelain. Porcelain. Yeah, that hits the floor goodbye, goodnight. It's kind of sexy and provocative, right? I mean, she's got cleavage popping out. Yeah, that would never have happened back in 1697. But you got to remember, this was in 1976 they did this. 1976, it was about selling. You're selling booze with a sexy woman (laughs) with scalps and an axe in her hand. Right, and we don't even know what she really looked like because there was no photographs of her. That whiskey decanter is from 1976, but the New Hampshire Historical Society still sells a Hannah Dustin bobblehead in its museum shop. On the base of that bobblehead, it says, quote, the mother's revenge. You can probably see how these kitschy collector's items might feel offensive. In fact, all the Hannah Dustin stuff and Hannah Dustin landmarks are a problem for some people who know the whole story. But the whole story, that's a tricky thing to pin down. You got to understand something with the Hannah Dustin story. There's a lot of interpretation out there, and there's a lot of New England folklore. Hannah Dustin's kidnapping and escape happened more than 300 years ago, and the story has been told and retold a lot. And actually, the reason we know anything about it today has to do with the fact that she scalped her victims. After Hannah came home, her husband took her and all those Abenaki scalps down to Boston to sell them. Now, if you're like me, when you heard she had scalped her victims, you may have thought she had some kind of bloodlust. I thought scalping was something tribes did to white people, not the other way around. Turns out, I was very, very wrong. Colonial governments paid cash for Native American scalps, heads, and even hands. They would pay most for a man, less for a woman, and least for a child. They would even pay Native Americans for the body parts of other Native Americans, depending on who was warring with whom at the time. So Dustin had financial incentive for scalping her victims. But here's the reason we still know the story. When Hannah was in Boston selling her scalps, she sat down with Cotton Mather, and he wrote her story down. His name might ring a bell. Cotton Mather was head of the Protestant church in New England. He had ties to the Salem witch trials, and he was a fire and brimstone minister who traveled around giving sermons. These little frontier towns that Cotton Mather visited, they were filled with these shell-shocked colonists who had missing family members from Native American raids. Mather told Dustin's story again and again to rapt churchgoers, building Dustin's status as a heroine. Well, I think the Hannah Dustin story has endured for so long because it's not just a story about a woman who killed people. It actually has become a story about the American nation at different points in time. This is Barbara Cutter, historian and professor at the University of Northern Iowa. It was a story about uh, the colonial battle against Native Americans in the 17th century. It was a story justifying the westward expansion of the United States in the 19th century. And in more recent years, it has been used as a story domestically about culture wars, really. Cutter has researched how and why the Hannah Dustin monuments were built. And she says it really hit home just how far the story had traveled when... I happened to cross a Salt Lake City Mormon woman's newspaper in the 1890s that started off by saying, who has not heard of Hannah Dustin? I mean, Hannah Dustin was from Massachusetts. After her captivity, Hannah Dustin lived in colonial obscurity. She actually had seven more kids and died at age 84. No one talked about her through the 1700s. She was forgotten until... 
in the 18 teens and the 1820s, the United States was a new nation and a lot of intellectuals at that point in time were trying to create a distinctly American culture. And so they started telling American stories and trying to uncover American heroes and heroines. So the country's literary elite dug around for some good old American stories, and they found Hannah Dustin. Cutter says if you were an American in, say, 1865... Well, the first place you might likely come across her would be when you opened your American history textbook in the school. You would also come across her story if you read famous American writers like Hawthorne. Or John Greenleaf Whittier or Henry David Thoreau. Popular magazines, newspapers, essay collections, children's books, paintings. In the 1800s, Hannah Dustin was a household name. Johnny Appleseed, Davy Crockett, Hannah Dustin. But with each retelling of the story, something happened. People changed the narrative to suit their purposes. It becomes a moral problem for Americans that Hannah Dustin killed children, especially since, I mean, they weren't just children, they were sleeping children. Writers omitted details, embellished others, and sometimes just made things up. They completely left out the children she killed, replacing them with warriors. That Abenaki child that escaped? The writer said Dustin spared him intentionally, which there's no evidence of. Most writers depicted Hannah Dustin as a sympathetic heroine, this outraged mother seeking a justifiable revenge. This was the era of manifest destiny, as in, it is America's destiny to inherit the land, to seize it from people dubbed heathens and savages. That's when I think New Englanders really started focusing on Hannah Dustin more and more as the kind of heroine they should commemorate. In the mid-1800s, as headlines screamed about the wars in the West, monuments sprung up in the Northeast. When the monument on the island was built in 1874, there were a thousand people present. Again, it was the first monument ever built to a woman in the U.S. But when the Indian Wars died down around 1900, Hannah Dustin dropped out of the national spotlight again. But a subset of New Englanders held on to her story. In 1905, Hannah Dustin's descendants created the Dustin Family Association. They sort of littered the landscape of Haverhill with memorial boulders and millstones in her honor at sites where she landed her canoe, across from where she was buried. Apparently, they put one up at one place where she turned around and looked back, thinking that Indians might be following her on her way home. Then all the way into the mid-1900s, there was a whole other layer of things named after those rocks and statues. A nursing home, a school, streets. Over time, the namings petered out, but the names themselves stuck. And so did the Dustin family. Well, my name is Cedric H. Dustin, Jr. I'm the 10th generation from Hannah. So would that make her my 8th great-grandmother? I'm not sure. I just haven't counted. (laughs) (laughs) Something like that, yeah. Yeah. Cedric is the vice president and formerly the president of the Dustin Family Association. He's 88, and he's known about Hannah Dustin since he was a boy. To Cedric, Hannah was a heroine. She was concerned about her own life and those of her companions. And as such, I thought she was quite a lady to hatch the plan that she did and do the things she did. But basically, I think it was for self-preservation. 
Just to make something clear, the Dustin Family Association isn't lobbying for statues anymore. They mostly spend time tracing their lineage and they get together for a barbecue every summer. And Cedric Dustin says he understands why some aren't such a big fan of his grandmother eight generations removed. But he is disappointed the statue and the island are in disrepair. Hannah's nose was shot off with a rifle, there's graffiti, and the grass hasn't been mowed in years. When I was a young man, I could have gone up there and cut the whole thing, but right now, age won't let me do that. Uh, But I, I think the state of New Hampshire should make good use of the fact that they have in their confines the first statue ever erected to a woman in this country. Perhaps a new sign should be put at that location indicating that as opposed to the sign that's there now indicating the deed that happened on that island. So this is the island, huh? This is the island. I went back to the island with the 30-foot-tall Hannah Dustin Monument with someone who says he's avoided going out there for years. She doesn't look very heroic. She looks more like a, an opportunist, angry opportunist that went back and then bragged about it, and then history has become history. This is Paul. Uh, I'm Paul Puglio. I'm the Sagamo, which is roughly translated the principal speaker of the, the Grand Council of the Kawasak Band of the Penacook and Abenaki people. Paul doesn't buy Cotton Mather's version of the story, the one where the Abenaki smashed Dustin's newborn baby against the tree. He says it doesn't mesh with other captivity stories of the era. We have many, many accounts of captives saying that being taken uh, by the Abenaki was not a death sentence. Many went to Canada. Some of them were traded back. Paul thinks Hannah's captives were probably treating her well. Well, presumably as well as one can be treated in captivity. And he says Abenaki's revered children. So the idea of a warrior bashing a baby against a tree, as Cotton Mather's story portrays, sounds unlikely to him. It's impossible to know how the baby was killed or how Hannah Dustin was treated by her captors. And I hesitate to judge from my 21st century vantage point what she should or shouldn't have done in order to make her escape. But it's clear that the Hannah Dustin story is complicated. Paul thinks the monument to her should just be forgotten. I mean, I really don't think this, this monument should be preserved in any way. Just let it... It's, it's going to last here for millennia, so... It's unfortunate it's here. It's not going away. And that's the problem now. The Hannah Dustin monuments, the one on the island and all the others, are mostly fading relics in out-of-the-way places. But every few years, some politician or history buff or Native American points to one and says, tear this thing down or clean this thing up. And every time, people argue. Is she a heroine or is she a villain? The same thing over and over and over. Just in the last couple months, there's been renewed talk about the monument. People are suggesting putting up additional plaques that show the Abenaki history, or changing the name from the Hannah Dustin Memorial State Historic Site to the Kentuckook Island State Historic Site. But even something as small as cleaning up graffiti on the monument or mowing the grounds could be seen as taking a stance about whether Hannah Dustin deserved a monument in the first place, about whether she was actually a hero or villain. Before we left the island, Paul Puglio said there was something he wanted to do off the record. Sure. No recording? Okay. He pulled out a drum and some tobacco. 
He paced around the monument twice. One time he scattered a little tobacco on four sides of the statue. The other time he beat the drum and sang. He didn't want me to record the ceremony, but he talked about it afterwards. We don't want to forget uh, our ancestors of the past. So we, we did a little honoring song, and we made an offering of tobacco to kind of purify the grounds where we were uh, walking around there. And does it provide you with any relief or satisfaction to do that? Well, it's what is appropriate, you know, just asking an Earth Mother to, you know, honoring an Earth Mother, take them back, and understanding there's some kind of closure there now. Spiritual closure, if nothing else. In lieu of any public decision on how to include Paul's ancestors in this history, this private ceremony will have to be enough. For now, the statue, with her shot-off nose and vague, haunting plaque, remains neglected and crumbling. Which, actually, is probably the most accurate symbol of how we feel about Hannah Dustin today. Ambivalent about who she was, but not quite ready to let her go. March 15th to 30th, 1697. The war whoop, tomahawk, faggot, and infanticides were at Haverhill. The ashes of wigwam campfires at night and of ten of the tribe are here. Invisible was produced this week by Jack Rodolico with Katie Mingle, Sam Greenspan, Avery Truffleman, and me, Roman Mars. We are a project of 91.7 Local Public Radio KALW in San Francisco and produced out of the offices of ArcSign, just steps away from the 12th and Broadway BART stop in beautiful downtown Oakland, California. Support for 99% Invisible comes from the heroes who gave during our record-breaking Kickstarter campaign, including My Gift of Grace. The design firm The Action Mill created a card game called My Gift of Grace, and it helps you have those conversations with your family and friends that you know you need to have, but you just keep putting off, specifically the ones about life and death. When you start playing, there's a little bit of anxiety because these are tough issues and maybe some nervous laughter, but then it turns into real laughter and the players tossing game pieces around. It turns out that the conversations we're scared to have can be some of the best conversations of our lives. Go to actionmill.com or follow the link from this episode's webpage and use the offer code INVISIBLE and you can save 10% on my gift of grace. We're also extremely grateful for the support of Tiny Letter, email for people with something to say. My boy Carver always has something to say. What do you guys say, Carver? I like statues in the woods if they do not, absolutely do not, move when you blink. Tinyletter.com. It's free, easy, minimal, and powerful. The simplest way to send an email newsletter from the great people behind MailChimp. We are a founding member of Radiotopia from PRX. If you were to reinvent radio from scratch today, Radiotopia is what you'd create. Welcome to Strangers. The truth. Theory of everything. Radio diaries. Love and radio. Fugitive waves. From the Kitchen Sisters. Creator-driven, story-driven, listener-supported, sound-rich radio. Find out more at radiotopia.fm or search for Radiotopia on iTunes. If you're interested in supporting this and other podcasts in Radiotopia, 
email sponsor at prx.org. You can explore more and more about this show and interact with those of us who make it and fans just like you on Facebook, Twitter, and Tumblr. But if you want to see the statue of Hannah Dustin with her nose shot off, that is at 99pi.org. The music you're listening to right now is by 99PI favorite OK Akumi. He has a fantastic new album out right now. When it plays in the background, OK Akumi's music makes our show so much better. And that same magic can work in your everyday life. Trust me, it works. Go to OKAkumi.com or follow the links on our website, 99PI.org. Radio Topia from PRX.